one heavenly king, Lord of all. Let's keep that in mind as we head to the end of Philippians chapter 1. We're finishing up that chapter today. It's a good break point for me to be on vaca- go on vacation. Um, I will let you know that when I get back, we're actually going to spend a few weeks in Genesis. Um, I'm taking a slight detour and uh, hitting some hot topics uh, out of Genesis, uh, some cultural issues and bringing the Word of God to bear on some of those uh, cultural issues. Uh, it's not something I usually do, as you should know after eight years, uh, but uh, sometimes it's kind of important to do that. And then after that, we will pick back up in Philippians chapter 2. So don't take that as a, hey, Steve bailed in the middle of a book. Uh, didn't do that. So, all right, picking up in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, your word does not return empty, but it does accomplish your will and purpose. That is because your word is mighty, powerful, living and active. And may it be effective among us this morning that it may bear fruit in faith. People who are trusting you, whether for the first time or more fully, that it may be effective in growth and discernment as well as the fruit of righteousness. And we ask this because of Jesus, who is the fountain of grace, and peace from you on our behalf. Amen. We prayed for Katie, because Katie is going to a different place to do gospel work, to do missions work. And I'm reminded uh, of the trips that I've taken, and I'm sure something very similar happened uh, in her team. Uh, We were instructed before we went to Mexico City back in the 90s, instructed on what to do and what not to do. And and some of it was just basic practical kinds of stuff. Um, You know, don't drink the water. Don't flush the toilet paper because you don't want to uh, destroy the plumbing that they have there. But some of it had more to do with um, not putting up obstacles for the gospel amongst the people that you were serving. And some of those sound kind of strange. One year we were advised that men were not to hold hands together. Now, in our culture that doesn't happen, generally speaking. But there are other cultures, like some some in Asia, where men who are friends will hold hands. And it's not seen as something strange. But when you do that in Mexico... The Mexicans don't quite understand what's going on and interpret it completely different from how you intend it. So we were told not to do that. Paul is, in a sense, in some ways, sort of doing the same thing here. The Philippians aren't going anywhere, but he's addressing their conduct, their behavior, within their own city of Philippi, so that they will be effective and making Jesus known in Philippi. And so what he says has some bearing on us as we seek to make Jesus known in Tucson and Hungary. The big big idea this morning is that the gospel shapes our conflict in the midst of conflict, sorry, our conduct in the midst of conflict and affliction. I'll have to say that one all over again because I 
got my brain ahead of myself. The gospel shapes our conduct in the midst of conflict and affliction. And now, I'm going to speak these largely in terms of imperatives because uh, or commands, because that's what Paul is doing here. And so, first, conduct yourselves in keeping with the gospel. Uh, we've gone 27 verses, or 26 verses, haven't hit a command yet. Well, verse 27, boom, there is your first command, your first imperative from the mouth of Paul. He's been focusing instead on issues of prayer and updating the people on what he's been doing, how life has been going, and, and how the gospel is advancing. But now we have a command, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, another way of translating that that many other versions will use is conduct yourselves. And the idea here is as good citizens. That word that we uh, get polity from or politics from is one of the roots of this word. So it has to do with that idea of citizenship behavior. Behave as good citizens. Paul is saying this in particular because he is speaking to people in a place where good citizenship mattered. Remember, Philippi, colony of Rome, citizenship mattered. Remember, Acts 16, when Paul was being dragged to the magistrates and he was accused falsely, but still accused, one of the accusations was that these men, Paul and Silas, advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. And so citizenship in Philippi mattered. Conducting yourself as a proper citizen of Rome was something that mattered. But Paul is not telling them to conduct themselves as good Roman citizens, is he? He's got something different in mind. He's, he's trying to communicate to them that grace and peace are not something that is given to us so that we, li- we feel better about ourselves. This is not a, uh, so what some people call the moralistic therapeutic, uh, false gospel. Okay. What Paul is saying is that grace and peace are intended to shape how we live. And so I have that phrase that informs the title of this sermon and is on the sign outside, Gospel Conduct. And by that I mean conduct that is influenced by, driven by, um, maintained by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus qualifies all who believe in him for what Paul will call heavenly citizenship. He qualifies them to live in his kingdom, not simply in the Roman Empire. We see this in Colossians 1. The Father has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so when you become a Christian, you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, which would be a kingdom of light. From a kingdom of corruption and sin to a kingdom of love and holiness. Okay? But we're transferred by God's grace into this kingdom. Paul will speak of this later in the letter to the Philippians in the third chapter when he reminds them, uh, hey, you, even though you live in, in Philippi, this colony of Rome and citizenship in Rome is an important thing. Hey, you, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So this Jesus in His kingdom is not going to be some small, insignificant kind of kingdom, but Jesus is at work even now making everything subject to Him and His kingdom. And so while we might be lowly now, while the Philippian Christians were low on the pecking order within their own culture, they were going to be transformed and receive glorious bodies because of their heavenly citizenship. The citizenship that mattered. Does Roman citizenship matter now? And so what these people thought was so important was ultimately not important. And what seems to be insignificant to the Philippians, or at least least the non-Christian Philippians, became of utmost importance. And so we see that faith unites us to Jesus Christ, who on our behalf obeyed and suffered obeyed for our righteousness, suffered as the penalty for our sin. But not just that, it unites us to this same Jesus so that we can obey Him who is our King. Not just pardon, but purification comes through our our union with Jesus Christ. And so this is not, um, please do not think of it this way. Conduct yourselves in a certain way so that you can become citizens. Right? That's works. Thinking that if I just act the right way, if I do the right things, I will become a citizen. I'm a natural born citizen of the United States of America. I'm not the citizen, uh, I've not become the citizen of any other country, uh, but I hear, hear some of you have been born elsewhere and become citizens and you have to take a test. Right? You have to, you have to take a test and you have to pass the test. And they also make sure that you haven't done any bad things. Your conduct determines whether you're allowed to become a citizen of the United States of America. That's not what's in light here. What's what's in view here is, by God's amazing grace, you, a sinner, have been made a citizen of the heavenly kingdom of Jesus Christ and... Therefore, conduct yourselves in this way. Because you're our citizen by grace, conduct yourselves in a particular way. Live in a particular way. And so this is not meant in any way to um, be an earning of uh, this citizenship. This is similar to what we see in Exodus chapter 20 in the giving of the law. It starts off with the prelude of the covenant I am the Lord, your God, who brought you, who redeemed you out of slavery. The law was given to people who were his people. It was not given so they would become his people. The redemption from Egypt had already taken place. And because they were his people, they were to live his way. And it's the same sort of logic that we see here in Philippians chapter 1. We enter the kingdom by pardoning and adopting grace because not only are we citizens, but we're also sons. We live in that kingdom by purifying grace. Grace from beginning to end. But here's part of the reality. We're called to, we don't see it in this passage and we don't see it in this letter, but we see it particularly in Ephesians and Colossians. Okay, But that idea of putting off the ways of the old man or the old country and beginning to put on the ways of the new man or the new country. Perhaps another way of saying it, of saying it would be, stop acting like you, like you live in Rome and start living like you live in Jesus. Stop living like you live in America and start living like you belong to Jesus. Let's put it this way. 
Judy's not here today, but Judy has a new job. And one of the things that uh, she mentioned to some of us, and we've talked, how's the new job going? And, and there are a lot of things about the new job that are really good, but it's a challenge for her because it's a new place with new people, with new expectations, and she has to remember that she's not the old Judy in the old place with the old expectations and the old responsibilities. She used to be in charge. Now she's not in charge. Her conduct has to change in part because her identity with regard to that position has changed. It's not an easy task. I'm sure there are moments when she starts to open her mouth and has to go, I can't say that. I have no standing here. I'm not in charge anymore. And different people who do things differently are in charge. Put it, put it another way, we're, we're to take off things like our greed, our hatred, perhaps our deceit, and other sins, and we're intended to put on things like generosity, love, truthfulness. That's not simply here within the four walls of, the, of Desert Springs Presbyterian Church that's intended to be, you're also putting them off and putting those things on in the context of your neighborhood. You're speaking truthfully to the person who lives next door to you. You're not trying to steal their stuff. You're speaking truthfully at work. You're not trying to steal someone's job or ruin their reputation by bearing false witness against them. Because, as many of you have discovered, that's how it often goes in the workplace. There are people who will lie about you to get what they want. And we're not to live that way. We're not to live like the people around us. We're to live in a way that pleases Jesus because Jesus has taken us in. Now, Paul throws out this very important thing. He says, whether I come and see you or absent. In other words, uh, this conduct worthy of the gospel is intended to take place whether Paul returns to Philippi or whether he never returns to Philippi. In other words, it's not about whether or not Paul sees them. It's about whether or not Jesus sees them and Jesus sees everything. I wish more of our kids were here this morning, including my kids. Uh, it, is, it is Father's Day after all. Um, Children are to obey parents, whether or not the parents are there. It's not about whether or not you get caught. It's about doing that which is right and good and pleasing to parents. So I'm glad there's a few of you who children who are here, and I saw a few parents maybe giving elbows to their children. Hey, you, catch this. But it's also true, we see this in other places in Paul's letters, but you're to do this whether or not the boss is present. Right? When I was in high school, I worked at Montgomery Ward, which no longer exists. Yay, wards. It's scary, though. Most of the places I used to work no longer exist. I'm not sure what that says. Okay. But there was a, a guy who used to be on my basketball team when we were much younger. And, uh, so I got to know him. Uh, sometimes his dad would, would, uh, would drive a bunch of us, uh, cause he lived there in my neighborhood too. I think he was like a year behind me in school. And uh, he started working at Montgomery Ward in a different department. And, um, he thought he could steal from the register. And what he forgot was that, you know, when you look up, you see that little mirror up there. And that means that there's a camera. (laughs) 
And so whether you could see the boss or not, whether you thought anyone was looking or not, the boss knew, and he, of course, got fired. Whether or not Paul is there, Jesus knows how they're living and wants the best for them. This command really is explained more fully throughout the rest of the letter. Don't think it just ends at the end of chapter 1, but this really is, in a sense, a transitional command in the structure of this entire letter. This is the turning point. And now everything else is going to be largely about conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So the grace received in salvation is meant to shape our conduct in our sanctification, our, the process by which we become more and more like Jesus, dying more and more to sin. Secondly, not only are we to conduct ourselves in keeping with the gospel, we are to contend together for the gospel. He wants to hear, Paul, this is the he, wants to hear that they, the Philippians, are standing firm, in one spirit, with one mind. Now, that standing firm is often a, a term used in military contexts. And in fact, Paul will use that in a military-like context, as we read in Ephesians chapter 6. They're to put on the whole armor of God in the midst of spiritual uh, conflict, so that they're able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Hold ranks. Guard the line, however you kind of want to want to put that. And the idea here, uh, for those who have studied military history, of course, uh, or or combat strategy, the phalanx, the wall of soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, working together. Okay, with their shields touching one another uh, and their spears ready to thrust either up or down, depending on the occasion. But they move as one so that nothing can get through. No arrows, no spears. There, It's a wall of shields so they move as one unit so that they're able to stand firm because they are guarding and protecting not only each individual but the unit as a whole. Phalanx. Military units, like teams, football teams or soccer teams, since the World Cup is going on, are to have the same goals. The members are to lay aside their side agendas, their personal agendas. Amy and I, a couple weeks ago, watched the, the relatively new movie, Twelve Strong. And uh, it's uh, based on the true story of what happened right after 9-11 and a group of Green Beret that were sent into the Afghan wilderness to take out uh, the Taliban headquarters, basically. And, of course, they, they couldn't go with tanks. Um, it was 12 men riding with uh, a bunch of Afghanis on horseback uh, trying to defeat the Taliban at this point. With They had air support, but still... But one of the great problems that emerged is that they realized that all of these tribal leaders that weren't part of the Taliban didn't like each other. And in fact, they hated each other more than they hated the Taliban. (laughs) And part of what they had to do was to get all of these guys on the same side so that together they could overcome the Taliban. And that's one of the the themes that runs uh, through that movie getting rid of those side agendas so that they were standing side by side against the common enemy. Unfortunately, too often God's people contend with each other instead of contending together for the gospel. We contend with each other sometimes over secondary issues. We fight about baptism. We fight about a lot of things. God's people, unfortunately, are a contentious bunch. And so there's a reminder that because we are one in Christ, we are intended to have one mind, we're intended to be of one spirit, and therefore are intended to work together, recognizing we have a common enemy, 
as opposed to thinking that your neighbor in the gospel is your enemy. We're not to make war on the Baptists, which is good because there's some of you here. You're safe. It's all right. We're not here to make war on the Methodists. I don't think any of them are here. That's all right. Our enemy is not them. Our enemy is the unbeliever, so to speak, who seeks to destroy the gospel. They were to contend specifically by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so uh, he gives a little direction in terms of what he means by uh, this standing firm. This is this is standing side specifically for the faith of the gospel. The goal was the defense of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's not the only one who said something like this. We see it in, in Jude's letter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write you to you about our con- uh, common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Did you catch that, though? What Jude wanted to write about was the greatness of our salvation, but what Jude found he had to write about was to remind them to contend for the faith that had been delivered once for all to the saints. They were not contending for the faith, in other words. And so there's a bit of rebuke that, that is given in Jude to these people. And it seems like the reason why Paul has to say this is because the Philippians weren't striving together. They were not contending together for the gospel similar to the audience of Jude. They were to make reasoned defenses of the gospel, as we've talked about earlier in this letter. They were intended to proclaim Jesus together. When I was in my uh, committee of commissioners meeting for Covenant Seminary, one of the guys who was uh, concerned about the Revoice uh, Conference um, spoke up, and um, I think the third or fourth time he spoke up, He said that what we're supposed to be doing is standing on the wall and declaring the faith. And in my mind, and possibly that came through my lips, because sometimes I do that, but not too loud, I think, I hope, were the the words, what do you think Dr. Sklar is going to do at that conference? as one of the PCA people who was going to be at the conference, his area of expertise is Leviticus, and in particular, Leviticus 18. And his purpose, he, what he was asked to do, and what he would want to do anyway, if they didn't ask him, is to show how that passage still has relevance for today. It still matters in this discussion. He was going to stand upon the wall, and he was going to, de- and he is going to, because it hasn't happened yet, but his intention is, stand on the wall and declare the truth. But what this other man seemed to think is that he's supposed to declare the truth to the people who know the truth. That he's supposed to preach to the choir. That he's supposed to preach to the PCA. No, he's supposed to preach to the people who need to hear it. And so he's intending to preach this to those who struggle with same-sex attraction. So they know the truth. And his PCA brothers are not standing on the wall with him. They're acting like he's a traitor. Supposed to stand together for the sake of the gospel. So that those who do struggle with things like that 
can know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That there is strength in Jesus Christ. That they're not cast out, but they're brought in because of Jesus Christ. That they too can be washed and justified, just as we have, though we struggle with different sins. So he continues, standing, striving side by side, not frightened in anything by your opponents. And the idea they are frightened or alarmed has to do with that picture of basically stampeding horses. Out of control. When fear just kind of takes over and you just run for the hills. Okay? You are a brave Sir Robin who ran away. And always runs away every time something unfortunate raises its head. We are not to be like that. We are not to be shaped by fear. We are not to be uh, living in this kind of fear, frightened by our opponents. Because that's what opponents do. They seek to intimidate you. They push out their chest and they try to act bigger than they really are. And they make all kinds of words and boasts similar to what Goliath did when he was taunting the armies of Israel on the plain. And for Samuel, we see it in places, if you watch movies, Braveheart, what do they do before the fight? They intimidate each other. They yell. They scream. They want to instill fear in the opponent, and so that they run away, and they don't. So they don't have to actually fight. And so we see the enemies of the gospel often tossing slurs at us to intimidate us, threatening lawsuits. Ever been threatened with a lawsuit? I have. It's okay. Been sued. I did. That kind of stunk, but. Uh, <laughs> had nothing to do with the gospel. Discernment, as I've said before, but I'll say again, recognizes your allies. It recognizes that they have the same banner. Discernment also recognizes your enemies. Yesterday, since the wife and kids were flying to New Jersey, I had free time. According to Amy, this is her Father's Day gift to me. I'm alone. And so I watched Six Days, another based-on-a-true-story movie. Uh, 1980, I think before the fall of Tehran, uh, where some Palestinian terrorists take over the uh, Iranian embassy in London. And so uh, this was about the um, largely about the SAS squad that rescued the prisoners, the hostages, rather, in all of this. And so before they breach the wall and go into the embassy, one of the things that they said was, know these faces. They had been able to identify a number of the terrorists who, who were within the Iranian embassy. And so there's this one scene, uh, there's just been a firefight in one of the rooms and they think they've killed all of the terrorists and they think that the hostages are laying on the ground and they're like, come on, get up, get up, get up, let's go. And they're bringing them down the stairwell and one of the soldiers stops somebody on the stairwell. And he just looks into his face for like five seconds. He's just looking at him. And you think he's about to let him go. Boom! Shoots him repeatedly. And the guy falls over. And it's then that you see that there's a grenade in his hand. Because he knew his enemy, he was able to discern that that man was one of the terrorists and not a hostage. And saved everyone else's life. If you don't know your enemy from your ally, you're going to hurt the wrong people. And your allies are going to get hurt. So contending, not running, is intended, Paul says, to be a sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation. Huh? You see... Their hatred and opposition to the gospel and godliness is a sign that they hate God and are condemned. And the fact that you stand 
side by side, together, contending for the gospel is a sign to them of their condemnation, their coming destruction, as well as your salvation. That you are united to Christ and are joined to Him and His kingdom will prevail. Okay? Because the reason you stand is because you trust that Jesus is with you as He promised. That whole Great Commission thing, you know, uh, Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always. You believe that, lo, He is with you now. Just as Paul believed during his trials that that Jesus was standing with him. There's a reason why he thought Jesus was with him in that courtroom. Because of Jesus' promise that Paul believed. And we're intended to believe that promise. And believing in that promise is evidence of the faith that saves us. We read from Second Chronicles in uh, the life of King Asa when the Ethiopians were coming. Now, when you start to read that, it sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? We got like five to six hundred thousand soldiers. We're rocking. Oh, they've got a million. That's not so good. They got chariots. That's even worse. They needed the promise that God would be with them and fight for them so that they would not be filled with fear, break ranks, run away. They trusted the Lord and were delivered. And you see that repeatedly because the reason why uh, I had that reading from uh, Second Chronicles is because I'm currently in Second Chronicles. <laughs> and I keep seeing this. And sometimes it's God, they don't even have to fight. There are times when God just turns the enemy upon themselves and they, they kill each other. And, and, and the, the Israelites just kind of come in and like take the plunder and go, thank you, God. You are merciful to us. Your steadfast love endures forever. In fact, that's what they're, they're singing during one of those battles. They're just sitting there going, your steadfast love endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. And their enemies are being slaughtered. And so there's a sense in which we sit there and we proclaim the gospel. His steadfast love endures forever. And we know this because of Jesus crucified and raised from the dead on the third day. And he takes care of it. These people, as it says, were under, they experienced the same conflict that Paul had, and which he now has as well, uh, in prison in Rome, but they're experiencing the same thing. Conflict for the truth, for the gospel. So the gospel produces people who stand together and strive for the gospel. Thirdly, this is the one non, non-imperative. The Father gives us or gave us faith and affliction for Christ. See, in the midst of all of this, it is very easy to forget why you are there. To think that something strange has happened to you. Why is it that we're experiencing these rather unpleasant circumstances of persecution. Why is this going on? And Paul says that it has been granted to you or freely given to you for the sake of Christ. That word freely given or granted has charis or grace at the root of the word. It has been graciously given to you, undeservedly given to you, unmeritedly given to you. It's part of the grace and peace that Paul is talking about, given to you. Something they didn't deserve and we don't deserve. And it is given to them on Christ's behalf or for the benefit of Jesus Christ. Meaning, it's for His glory as the Savior. It's for His consolation for His suffering as we see in Isaiah 53. How was Jesus consoled in Isaiah 53? It was because of His children. 
so to speak. And here we have the the uh, elect coming into salvation. So the first part of this granted to the to the Philippians and therefore also to you, Desert Springians, okay, that you should not only believe in Him. Okay, in other words, Christ is freely given as the unmerited object of our faith. Okay. But also that our faith is freely given to us as a gift, not something that we earned. They should know this. They should remember this because, and we should too, when we go back to Acts 16 and the founding of the Philippian church, Lydia did nothing that caused God to open her heart so that she would believe the message. It was graciously given to her, and it's not graciously given to everybody. Or everybody would believe. So it was given to them to believe, but not only to believe. Okay, Paul's got something else that he wants to add to this. Also, suffer for his sake or benefit. Suffering for Christ through persecution is understood by Paul to be a gift. It's the gift that we don't really want. What would happen if I had had the time to go to Daniel's wedding. And I had shown up with a box with a nice rice wrapping and a nice bow. And Daniel and Lauren opened it up, all excited. And inside it said, you get to suffer. That's not the gift I want for my wedding. It's not what I want for my birthday. It's not what I want for Father's Day. Whatever the occasion might be, the suffering is, is not really the gift. Uh, particularly persecution is not really the gift I'm looking for. But what Paul is getting at is that these two things come together with the one Jesus. You don't just get the one and not the other. We've talked about this in terms of justification and sanctification, but now we're talking about in terms of faith and persecution. You don't get to, it's not like a buffet line or, or, or you know, like I ordered sometimes on my trip to GA. Um, yes, can you hold the tomatoes on that, please? You can't say hold the persecution. This was a passage I prayed with Turning Bear that night in the hospital when he first had his stroke. It was appointed. It was graciously given. I don't understand any of that. But I believe it's true because Paul said it's true and Paul was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's true. So we bump up against this truth. Similar to Luke 9, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's no faith without discipleship. There's no discipleship without faith. They come together. And taking up your cross is dying. Okay? Tim Keller notes, if you build your life on God, suffering will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. This persecution that they were experiencing was intended to drive the Philippians and it's intended to drive you and me deeper into the source of our joy, God himself. And so united to the suffering Savior, we should expect to suffer for the Savior. I just saw news, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Nepal is the, na- the latest, greatest place to begin to 
try to exterminate Christianity. Okay, pray for our Nepalese brothers and sisters. There aren't many of them, and what few there are, there is it's purposeful extermination. We're we're not facing persecution from communism, uh, like in often happens in Asia. We're not experiencing persecution from Islam, as is happening to many Christians in the Middle East. Um, Ours is more from secularism, but it exists. This kind of points us to the fact, I think, on Father's Day, we need to remember that fathers sometimes give their children the gifts of hard things so that they will grow strong and wise. Good fathers don't make it easy on their children. They're not mean and nasty to their children. I'm not saying that. They're not cruel to their children. I'm not saying that. But they'll make them do that hard math homework or that (laughs) diagram that sentence. (laughs) Take out the trash. So that they'll develop character and be able to take out their own trash one day. Do you think your parents just learned how to uh, exist without their parents magically? Their parents trained them to do that. And so sometimes parents have to have their kids do hard things so that they can learn how to do hard things. It's It's not a bad thing. It's a gift of love, although it doesn't feel like it. Jesus receives glory precisely because we suffer for him. We believe that he's worth suffering for. And we, and because we suffer for the gospel. And we recognize this as a part of gospel conduct. I, I want to bring up, wow, I need to be quiet. Um, John Newton. First, he says we have two comforts. First, to know that afflictions spring not out of the dust, or they're random, but that they are appointed by Him who does all things well and who is sufficient to make up every loss. So that our afflictions are not accidental, but they come from the One who does everything well. But not only that, the second part of comfort is He makes up for whatever loss we have. And so it's almost like Habakkuk. Even though the crops don't come and the rain doesn't fall, I'm going to praise the Lord. Why? Because He is able to make up for me what the locusts have eaten. Another quote by John Newton. Because you know, I love John Newton. He drank for your sake a cup of unmixed wrath and only puts in your hand a cup of affliction mixed with many mercies. So he drank all the wrath, but while you have a cup of affliction, it is mixed with many mercies so that those afflictions do not destroy you, do not overwhelm you, but actually are part of your growth and maturity in the faith. And this extends, even though Paul's intention here is the persecution, I believe that this extends to all of our suffering. All of it comes from a Father who has good purposes in them for us. So, Our conduct in Mexico and Katie's conduct in Hungary is intended to adorn the gospel and not create unnecessary obstacles for the gospel to spread throughout Mexico City or wherever we might happen to bring it, like Tucson. Paul addresses the Philippians about how they needed to have their conduct shaped by the gospel of free grace and their citizenship in heaven. P. 
peace with one another enabled them to stand side by side with each other and contend together, not against each other, but for the gospel against local opposition. They needed to remember that God had appointed them to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for Jesus Christ. And so, is the gospel working out in your conduct in this kind of way? So that you're willing to be a front lines Christian? Or do you shrink back out of timidity and fear? Do you seek grace to stand firm? Do you seek peace to stand together with one, with one another, shoulder to shoulder, even when it's difficult and scary? Do you, do you trust Jesus enough to be standing on the front lines at work? On our Operation Overton Reserve project, perhaps? Or as some of you are about to be commissioned and go to the Midtown Presbyterian Church when I get back sometime when Charles tells me it's finally time. Okay? If you're going to Midtown, you need to have that outward focus of we are going to stand shoulder to shoulder for the gospel. I want to remind you of that. We're to have the same mentality here. I'm not saying that that mentality is only supposed to be there in Midtown. You know, they're on the cutting edge. We're up here, nice, safe, uh, you know, Oral Valley. But be aware. Be aware that Jesus changes people through the gospel. And if you're in Christ, that means you. Let's pray. Father, um, apparently I did not have the gift of brevity this morning. Um, but we pray that your people would bear great fruit in the work of the word this morning. Because of the work of your spirit. Because of the, the intercession of Jesus Christ for them. Uh, that we would begin to be or continue to be shaped so that our conduct continues to be shaped by this good news of Jesus, the salvation of sinners, the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we would live in light of that, an increasing measure in that as we would see ourselves as a people who are meant to live on the front lines of gospel ministry, not in a safe place. We're meant maybe to knock on some doors down the street and talk to co-workers at lunchtime or whatever it might be. The lonely neighbor down the street. Help us to, to recognize those gospel opportunities and to, to step into them by faith. We ask this in Christ's name. For His glory. Amen.